From NPR and WNYC, live from the Wilbur Theater in Boston, Massachusetts, this is Ask Me Another. I'm Ophira Eisenberg, your host for the next hour of Puzzles, Word Games, and Trivia. This is a pretty big deal. <laughs> it's our first road show at the beautiful Wilbur Theater. Say hi to the radio, everybody here. <laughs> and for this show, we have not one but three special guests. We have film critic Wesley Morris, author Lois Lowry, and of course, outspoken liberal crusader, former United States Congressman Barney Frank. So let's get to it and welcome our musical superhero, Mr. Jonathan Colton. Hello. We have our first two fabulous contestants right here. We have Claire Natola and Jack Martin. Welcome. Claire, you're originally from Boston. Do you have a Boston accent? Uh, it will come out the longer I'm around everybody. Other Bostonians? Here yeah. When I speak to relatives on the phone, it it's comes right, right out there. Back, yeah. Okay, back with your family. And Jack, you live in Medford? I live in Medford, born in Brighton, native Bostonian. It may not sound like it. Interesting you say that, because that little questionnaire was our genius segue into our first game, which is called Hard Ka Pun. That's hardcore pun for anyone who doesn't understand the stereotypical Boston accent, which is, of course, when you do not pronounce the R's. So what we're going to do is quiz you on common phrases and names that have a different meaning when you don't pronounce the R's. For example, if we said, it's cacao products on a waterfront pier, you would say dark chocolate <laughs> instead of dark chocolate. Okay. And the winner of this round will move on to our Ask Me One More final round at the end of the show. Let's play. It's what you send a white-fleshed fish celebrating another year of life. Jack. Birthday cod. That's right. Correct. Well done. It's the 1980s hit song from Culture Club about a reptile that can change its appearance to resemble a punctuation mark. Jack. That would be comma chameleon. <laughs> there you go. You come and go in between words. <laughs> it's a scary film about circle dancing at Jewish weddings. Jack. How about the Amityville horror? <laughs> the Amityville we were looking for horror movie, so oh, that, will, okay, that will do, okay. that will do. Okay. William Shakespeare's famous six-pack abs earned him this nickname around Stratford. Claire. The yes. bod of Avon? <laughs> the bod of Avon, Claire, you are correct. <laughs> it was the midnight show at the Globe Theater. <laughs> <laughs> She's a professional who schedules toddlers' bathroom visits. Claire. Potty planner. <laughs> you got it. Potty planner. I finally figured out how to use the buzzer. <laughs> if you're stuck in a dead-end job, moving from Seoul to Pyongyang might be a much-needed type of this. Jack. Korea change. <laughs> Korea change is correct. 
He was one of the biggest country music singers of the 1990s with friends in low places, but now he's wearing all black clothes and dark eyeliner. Claire. Gath Brooks. Gath Brooks. <laughs> that was a very close game, but in this case, Jack, you are moving on to our final round at the end of the show. Congratulations. Claire, an excellent contender. Jonathan, do you have something that you can play for us on your guitar? Uh, I understand this is the song that is sung during the seventh inning stretch at Fenway. So let's do this and stretch, because I know we're all exhausted from the trivia. This is called Sweet Caroline. Where it began, I can't begin to know it. But then I know it's growing strong. It was in the spring. Spring became the summer. Who'd have believed you'd come along? Hands touching hands, reaching out, a touching. Thank you, Jonathan Colton. So weird how no one ever knows the words to that song. Yeah. As I mentioned, we have three special guests on this show because so many amazing people live in Boston. We had to take advantage of it. So right now, we're going to bring out one of them, Pulitzer Prize winning film critic Wesley Morris. Hello. Welcome, Wesley. Wesley, you predicted that Argo was going to win this year for Best Picture over Lincoln. Yes. Was that anything to do with any favoritism towards Boston on your part, or did you really think Ben Affleck deserved it? Okay, so there's two things. The first thing is, um, no, he, I mean, deserve? I don't know. Was Argo the best of the ten movies? No. Or the nine movies? I don't think so. But it was this sort of, like, Hollywood rallying around this guy for having this perceived tragedy happen to him. Right. Um, the tragedy of not making the best director cut when the other five guys were like Ang Lee and Steven Spielberg and a couple other people. Do you have a favorite movie? That is my least favorite. It's just a hard question to answer. Do you have a favorite movie uh, in the last year? In the last year? Uh, my favorite movie in the last year... Um, I like the Paperboy from last year. That might not be my absolute favorite. I'm now blanking on what my first favorite movie from 2012 was. Um, Just so you know, my favorite movie of all time yes. is Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Raiders Which, of the Lost Ark, the first one. Lost Ark, okay. Yep. It's never going to change? Don't think so. Wow. This is going to be a fun game. So, Wesley, <laughs> we have found someone to play against you. Please welcome Dan Katz. Hi there. Hi, Dan. Now, Dan is a, uh, he's a math teacher, he's a film fanatic, he's also written a play about love. 
Love and crosswords. Love and crosswords. Okay, so this is your chance to pitch the movie version of your play to a Pulitzer Prize-winning film critic. You Ooh. have one sentence to do it. Give them what it's about. One sentence. Yeah, that's what you got. Elevator pitch. Give me. Well, well, to quote my theater advisor at the time, it's a piece of self-indulgent wish fulfillment, uh, <laughs> in which uh, a man discovers that uh, his girlfriend, who's not really that into crosswords, probably shouldn't be his girlfriend. Oh. Sounds perfect. What do you think, Leslie? I'm going to call the people at Sundance right now. <laughs> there you go. So this next quiz is called Plus One, because we're going to a special event, I hope, a movie screening, Jonathan? No, no, you, you know very well, Afira, we are never invited to any special events. That's true, that's true. This, this game is about fictional movie sequels. We will describe a fictitious sequel to a real movie. You tell us the title of the new film, which is made by adding one to all of the numbers appearing in the original title. Mm. For example, if we said, in this Ron Howard sequel, Tom Hanks tells Houston, we have another problem. As he once again fails to land on the moon, you would say, Apollo 14. Whoever wins this round will move on to our Ask Me One More final round at the end of the show, and that includes you, Wesley. In this dramatic sequel, Henry Fonda's character meets a forensic scientist who reconvenes the jury and convinces them that the defendant actually was guilty. Dan. 13 Angry Men. You are right. After all the brouhaha last year with her sister's wedding and the underwear, high school junior Sam Baker is shocked when her family forgets her birthday again. Dan. 17 Mine candles. Mine keeps locking. Wesley's already blaming the buzzer. You're right, Dan. At the start of this epic sequel, Moses has just led his people to the promised land when God summons him back to the mountaintop for one more rule, beer before liquor, never sicker. <laughs> Wesley. Uh, elev- the, um, <laughs> the 11th commandment, sorry. That's right. <laughs> I almost said 11 angry commandments. But <laughs> that's redundant. You're mostly right, yeah. As if the 2010 original wasn't quite grueling enough, this sequel brings James Franco back and pins his left arm under a rock for 60 minutes longer than the right one was. Dan. 128 hours? That's right. In this rom-com sequel, that means romantic comedy, you guys, Hugh Grant and Andy McDowell try to recapture the old magic by attending even more nuptials and memorial services together. Dan. Five weddings and a funeral. Uh... We need you to add one to both numbers in the original Ow. title. Five, can I do it? Wesley? Oh. Uh, five weddings and two funerals. That's right. <laughs> I would have said the same thing he said. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. Luckily, you're slower on the buzzer, Wesley. <laughs> Unable to secure Macy's as a filming location, producers decided to shift the action one block uptown for this sequel to a holiday classic about a girl's belief in Santa Claus. Dan. Miracle on 35th Street. That's right. That is correct, Dan, and that is the final clue, so you will be moving on to our Ask Me One More final round at the end of the show. How about a huge round of applause for Wesley Morris. (laughs) 
Coming up, our VIP, that is very important puzzler. We are honored to have the former Massachusetts Congressman Barney Frank with us. So I ask you this. In 1981, Barney Frank succeeded Robert Drynan as the representative of Massachusetts' 4th District. Drynan decided to retire after he was spoken to by a very influential person. Who was it? Stick around. The answer's coming up on NPR's Ask Me Another. to Ask Me Another. I'm Ophira Eisenberg. And before the break, I said that our VIP tonight, Barney Frank, became Massachusetts congressman in 1981 after his predecessor, Robert Drynan, retired. Why did Drynan decide not to seek re-election? Let's turn to our puzzle guru, Art Chung. Welcome, Art. Hi, Ophira. Well, it turns out that Robert Drynan was a Roman Catholic priest and he won election in 1970 on an anti-Vietnam War platform. He was one of the most liberal members of Congress, and he was even on Richard Nixon's enemies list. But in 1980, Pope John Paul II told him he either had to leave Congress or leave the priesthood. He chose the priesthood and thus paved the way for Barney Frank. So God was involved with that decision, huh? (laughs) Ready or not, here are our next two contestants, Lorraine Fanton and John Pennett. Lorraine, I hope you're up for this because you described yourself as someone who has a knack for remembering dialogue from Bugs Bunny cartoons. And I would love a little snippet of that if you wouldn't mind. Okay, Rabbit, where's Rocky? Where's he hiding? He's not in the stove. Ho ho, he's hiding in the stove, eh? Look, Mac, when I turned on the gas and my friend Rocky was in there, you might, Rabbit, you might. Well, when I pulled a lighted match if my friend Rocky was in there, John, you're a professional party planner. What kind of parties do you plan? I plan reunions. Are they big parties? Big parties. Eight, nine hundred people. Are they fun? Do you hang out at them? I hope so. (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) Our next game is called Name Brand Names. And Art, what is this game about? Afira, in this game, we're going to ask you about people with specific clothing items named after them. Items they might call their me clothes. So here's an example. I'm a famous British Duke and soldier. I enjoy the heat of battle, but before I head out to fight, I slip on some tall rubber shoes, my me boots. And you would say Wellingtons or Wellies, which are the boots named after the first Duke of Wellington. So contestants, ring in when you know the answer. The winner will move on to our Ask Me One More final round at the end of the show. I hit pay dirt in San Francisco during the gold rush, but I didn't go a prospecting. In 1873, my friend Jacob Davis and I patented a new style of durable dungarees for miners, and people called them me pants. Lorraine. Uh, Levi's? That would be Levi's, yes, after Levi Strauss. <laughs> I'm a daring French acrobat who developed a flying trapeze. But before I perform high flying tricks, I pull on a tight spandex onesie, my me suit. John. Leotard? That's right, named after Jules Leotard. Correct. I was India's prime minister, and though I died in 1964, white kids playing psychedelic rock soon started dressing like me. 
To do so, they first put on a tailored, hip-length me jacket with a mandarin collar. Lorraine. Nero? Uh, Nehru, Nehru jacket, that's right. I'm a British soldier who led a small cavalry unit armed only with swords head-on into artillery fire, which is a bit ironic considering I inspired a clothing item that's come to symbolize the congenial domestic male. It's buttoned up the front and comes in many styles, but I call it a me sweater. John. Cardigan? Cardigan, yes, named after the 7th Earl of Cardigan. I know you're wearing a V-neck sweater there, John, which was the 6th Earl. We are all tied up. Close game. Woo. I'm a 19th century social reformer. Before I head out to fight for temperance and women's rights, I like to pull on a pair of full-cut pantaloons, my me pants. Lorraine. Bloomers. Bloomers, yes. I'm a famous comedian who is never said to have great fashion sense, but on a popular 1980s TV sitcom where my five kids said the darndest things, I wore pullovers with loudly colored patterns and textures, or me sweaters. John. Cosby? Yes, Bill Cosby sweaters. Have you ever worn a Cosby sweater? Oh, all throughout the 90s. So after they were popular. Yeah, well, <laughs> clearly, clearly. When they were on sale. I'm a rapper named Stanley Burrell, but you know me by my stage name and signature clothing items, which have recently been seen on Justin Bieber. Hands off, ladies. I'm dancing so fast, you can't touch these me trousers. John? Hammer? Hammer pants, you're right. <laughs> John just did a little hammer scooch. I think that's a victory dance, because you won. Well done, John. You'll be moving on to the Ask Me One More final round at the end of the show. Was attending MIT a walk in the park for you? Was Harvard your safety school? Well, then be a contestant on NPR's Ask Me Another. Just send us an email to askmeanother at npr.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter, and we'll send you a quiz to get things started. And if you do well, you too can get your PhD from NPR. Let's welcome our next special guest. She's an award-winning young adult author. Many of you have probably read Number of the Stars and The Giver. She calls Boston her home and was courageous enough to join us on the Ask Me Another stage. Let's welcome Lois Lowry to the show. Hello, Lois. Hi there. Nice to meet you. Thank you. When you were writing The Giver, I know no writer knows when they are writing an actual piece that how it will be received. But did you have a feeling right after the first wave of response that you would really struck a chord with readers? I wanted you to ask me what my favorite movie was. We'll get to that. <laughs> we'll get to that. Sorry, but that's such a hard question you asked me. Yeah. <laughs> no, the answer is no. You just didn't know. I didn't know. You were just surprised. Indeed. And The Giver is part of a quartet followed by Gathering Blue, Messenger, and Sun. So I'm wondering... Why did you decide to continue this story? What were you hoping to achieve by writing additional sequels? Uh, it was really at the request of, of uh, readers. I hadn't thought myself about doing it until those letters began to come. It's been 20 years from the first book to the last. And in those 20 years, there have probably been 
10,000 letters asking for another. And so I wrote the fourth one quite recently, and it's the final one, and I've said that, but already the letters are coming asking for a fifth. What is your favorite movie? (laughs) My favorite movie of all time is Fargo. Ah, that is a great movie. And it occurs to me that now that I've said that publicly, I have to go home and change my security question. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. Lois, we have found an excellent contestant to play with you. This is David Finnerty. Uh, David, you're a huge film buff and a reader. What is your favorite genre of books to read? Do you have a favorite? Uh, My favorite genre, I guess I'm kind of like an old-fashioned fuddy-duddy, or at least my friends uh, tell me I am. So I I gravitate more towards, like, 19th century literature, like uh, uh, old dead white men. (laughs) Or old women, if you're talking about the Bronte sisters or, uh, you know, Jane Austen. Yeah, that's your favorite stuff. Perfect. Okay, yes, you guys are going to be an excellent team. So this is one of our favorite games. It's called Product Placement, and here's how it works. I'm going to give you a short synopsis of a famous literary work with a reference to a product or company snuck in it. And you have to combine the title of the work with the product or company that we've subtly put in there. For example, if I said, known for its famous allegory of the cave, this classic work of Greek philosophy discusses justice, government, and where to buy slim-fit khaki pants... You would say Plato's The Banana Republic. (laughs) (laughs) And if you get enough of the questions right, David will win a special Ask Me Another prize, Lois. Wait a minute. David will win the prize? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I know. You some lovely party gifts for your Lois. It's okay. You get a prize, too, but I mean the prize that you provided. We will give to David. You have to spend the night with me, Lois. David, David, let's see if you get something right. Relax. In a pivotal scene in this satirical allegory, Napoleon the pig offers this revision of one of the seven commandments. Like animals, all snack foods are equal. But some, like mint Milanos and goldfish, are more equal than others. Mind if I take a stab? Oh, please. Pepperidge Animal Farm? Animal Pepperidge Farm. Okay, that's, that's good, that's good. In this Cormac McCarthy novel about a drug deal gone wrong along the U.S.-Mexico border, a Texas sheriff hunts a coin-flipping hitman named Anton Sugar who kills his victims with an unusual device, a mobile phone from Finland. I'm counting on you, David, for this one. Uh, Well, I know uh, no country for old men is in there somewhere. The Nokia. What's the Finnish? Oh, there you go. You you have all the pieces. Nokia country for old men. There you go. Nokia country for old men, yes. Set during the Hundred Years' War, this play features a battle scene with one of Shakespeare's most famous lines. Once more unto the breach, dear friends, once more. But first, try this refreshing blend of eight hearty vegetables. Mmm, tomatoey. <laughs> so the brand is V8, well, but what's the novel? Well, there's Henry V. Henry mm, V. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Um, he said once more into the bridge. Yeah, so, sure. Henry uh, the V8. Henry ah, the V8. There you go. 
1934 novel centers on a beloved teacher at Brookfield, a British boarding school for boys, who is fondly remembered for his inspiration, his leadership, and his blue bags of chocolate-studded cookies. Goodbye, Mr. Mr. Chips Ahoy. There you go. (laughs) Now you're finishing each other's sentences. This is amazing. (laughs) Vladimir and Estragon talk and argue endlessly while anticipating the arrival of someone bringing fresh-baked crescent rolls. If he ever arrives, they plan to poke his belly. (laughs) Hee-hee! Waiting for... Waiting for Godot. Waiting for the Pillsbury Godot boy. Waiting for the Godot boy. Waiting for the Pillsbury Godot boy. That's right. (laughs) Waiting for the Pillsbury Godot boy. So clever. So I think uh, you kind of got them all right. Did we kind of? Yeah. David, congratulations. You get a special prize. You get Lois Lowry's Quartet of the Giver. Oh, a beautiful awesome. four-book volume hardcover. They are gorgeous. And you both get an Ask Me Another Rubik's Cube. Very <laughs> what cool. you've always thank wanted. You. Lois Lowry, thank you so thank much. You. Big hand for okay. Lois Lowry, everybody. It's time for a song. How about something Boston-y? Something Boston-y. Why not? Not far away, in a place by the sea, something is watching and waiting for me. Brookline. Something isn't right in Massachusetts. Don't stray out of Boston town. The home of Samuel Adams The ride of Paul Revere Don't go past the signs that say The Freedom Trail ends here (laughs) One if by land and two if by sea Three if by guile and duplicity Brookline Brookline Jonathan Colton. Thank you. Well done. Let's welcome our next two contestants, Jason Hewitt and Karen Travers. Welcome to Ask Me Another. Hi. Hi. I would like to learn about how nerdy you both are. Karen, I'm going to start with you. I know that you like to participate in mud runs and obstacle courses. I do. With your identical sister. My identical twin sister. You're identical. My doppelganger. I'm going to give that a nerdy score of seven. <laughs> Jason, how nerdy are you? Do you have any nerdy hobbies? Uh, so I am part of the SCA, the Society for Creative Anachronisms. We sort of keep alive pre-1600s world culture. Uh, and that's everything from fighting to crafting to food to clothing. Yes. Yeah, that's a, that's a 20 out of up. 10. That's a 20 out of 10 on the nerd scale. <laughs> it's actually time for a music game. Jonathan, you seem to know a little something about Boston neighborhoods. Why don't you take this one away? This game features songs about the great city of Boston. For example, who can forget this Frank Sinatra classic? My kind of town, Winchester is. My kind of town. 
Okay, Jonathan, we all know that's Chicago. Chicago, my kind yes. of town. Okay, is so technically these songs are not about Boston, but we are going to pretend that they are by inserting a Boston neighborhood or famous landmark into them. So, contestants, all you have to do is ring in and give us the original location. There's a thousand pretty women waiting out there. They're all living devil make it. I'm just the devil with a love to spare. So, Viva Dorchester! Viva Dorchester! Karen. That would be Las Vegas. That's correct. Then I'm walking in Fenway Walking with my feet ten feet off a beam Walking in Fenway Do I really feel the way I feel? Karen? Memphis. Yes. Memphis. All right, this one's going to be hard for me. Arun Dewo, Saransuro, Gurendo, hey, Gurendo, hey, Jigabuto, Galika, Jigabuka, Up and Brighton style. <laughs> it's not my first language. I believe that was Jason who rung in. Gangnam. That's right, Gangnam style by Psy. Jason? Beverly Hills. Beverly Hills is correct. <laughs> Seen all the movie stars in their fancy cars and their limousines. Been high in the Rockies under the evergreens. But I know what I'm needing. I don't want to waste no more time. I'm in a Roslindale state of mind. It was Karen who rang in there. I would say Roslindale, but my first thought was New York. <laughs> That's right, New York state of mind, Billy Joel. That's right. Congratulations, Karen. You did it. You are the winner of this round, and you'll be moving on to the Ask Me One More final round at the end of the show. Thank you so much, Jason. This is NPR's Ask Me Another, and coming up, we'll talk to our VIP, that is very important puzzler, Barney Frank, about life after Congress, and we'll see if he can handle the heat of the Ask Me Another hot seat. Stay tuned.
Welcome back to Ask Me Another, NPR's hour of puzzles, word games, and trivia. I'm Ophira Eisenberg, and joining me is former United States Representative Barney Frank. Welcome to Ask Me Another. Mr. Frank, actually, let me ask you, how would you like me to address you? Barney would probably... Barney? You're going to go with Barney? Very good. So obviously, this is not going to be a political-based interview. This is really lighthearted. Plus, I'm Canadian, so I know nothing. (laughs) No, I know a little bit, but uh, we're not going to grill you. I'm going to start by asking something, you know, nice and easy. How's married life? Great. Uh, I'm with Jim. It's up there. Now, I I say that with uh, apologies to those people, I'm told, out there whose marriages Jim and I somehow damaged. I don't fully understand how. I know you did. We we turned to each other when you uh, asked the question, which was Henry VIII. Yes. Because I've always felt, as I read about it, that for some people... We're kind of like the character in the V8 commercial. And apparently, I, I gather this from, for instance, Justice Scalia, that eminent jurist, that um, <laughs> there are, I don't know, millions of happily married men in America, and they hear about me and Jim, and they say, I could have married a guy. <laughs> you served in Congress for over three decades. And let's go back to the beginning, though. Was there a inciting incident, a moment where you thought, I have to put my name on the ballot? Well, actually, I didn't have much time to, to talk, as, as you made clear with your question and answer. Uh, I was on a Saturday in May of 1980 planning to run one more time to be state representative and then leave. I'd gone to law school and practice law and do some gay rights activity and some other work. And I got a phone call that said, uh, as you noted, actually on the Sunday that the Pope had ordered Father Drynan not to run again. And I then had till 5 o'clock on the following Tuesday to come up with signatures, so there wasn't a lot of contemplation. Uh, when you uh, look back on your accomplishments, what stands out to you as something that you are particularly happy about? Well, the financial reform bill was obviously uh, important. <laughs> you know, we have, a great, we have a great United States Senator, Elizabeth Warren, who's a great friend and ally. <laughs> She and I, you know, it's a result, I think, more of our joint efforts than any other that we have for the first time, an independent consumer financial bureau that stands up for the consumer vis-a-vis the the banks, and that's important. Uh, One thing that was uh, important and negative, uh, I played a major role because of the committee I was on, you know, this is not some random choice thing, in helping to block the effort to drive Bill Clinton out of office uh, with the uh, impeachment of Bill Clinton. And... um, when I got to Congress in 1981, the notion of any kind of political support for what we then called gay rights was unthinkable. And, uh, well, I, I guess I, I put it this way. When I got into politics, I was afraid that my being gay was going to be a hindrance to my being in government because I, I knew that serving as a congressman, as a senator, you know, that was a great, respectable thing. Being gay was not. Um, as I left office, it struck me that my marriage to Jim was more socially acceptable than my being a congressman. (laughs) I'd like to think I helped to improve the image of the one, but it's not my fault about the other. (laughs) 
obviously, even from that answer, it is so clear you have often uh, been cited as one of the wittiest people in Congress, obviously very funny. I read somewhere a rumor that you would once thought of an alternate career, perhaps in stand-up comedy. I am a comedian. I would love to know what well, kind I, of act you look, would want to do. I, um, I have an advantage, seriously, over you, which is you get up, uh, maybe you're on a bill with three or four other comics, people have paid money, and they say, okay, lady, make me laugh. I get up as part of a group of eight or ten people who have been droning on, and people say, okay, keep me awake. <laughs> I mean, so I have a, trying to be funny in my line of work, you hit a much lower bar than, than, than in yours. But I think we share something in general we're dealing with both of our crowds is that we also have to tell all the drunk people to be quiet. Yes. Do you have to deal with that too? Yeah. Except on election day when I tell them to vote. <laughs> but I will tell you, I actually, I, I got to be very friendly in 1995 when he got elected to Congress with Sonny Bono. And we would talk about you're dealing with an audience, whether you're a politician trying to sell an idea or you're a, a comic, and, and uh, there are similarities there. Uh, that yeah, I it's all about discussing. seduction. <laughs> it is. It's all about seduction and making them laugh, and for a brief second people go, oh, I feel good. All right, whatever you want to do, I'll do. Yeah. I feel like you must have had a pretty competitive family. Your sister, senior advisor for Clinton, I mean, that, obviously you guys are both very... Uh, articulate and... Well, it's... Yeah, but, and, and my, my younger sister, uh, Doris Bay, was... She and her, her late husband were my campaign treasurers uh, for years. I'm very proud of 32 years, 16 elections. You know, many millions of dollars went through, never any problem. She was the one who, who kept me honest. My younger brother was a, uh, a speechwriter in the Clinton administration, so... But it's always been mutually supportive. I mean, you know, we've been very lucky that we've had... Whenever one of us is doing something, the others have always been... Tell uh, each other up. Did you guys play board games at home or anything? Scrabble? Uh, no, it was a lot of newspaper reading and, and, and <laughs> so, political... No time, no time. Yeah, and, and, uh, and political talk. But the most interesting member of my family, I have to tell you, is um, my mother, who, who had never been involved in politics, uh, graduated from high school in 1929, beginning of the Depression. Her parents died. She just became first a legal secretary and then a... You know, a 50s and 60s housewife, uh, 40s and 50s, raising four kids. In 1982, when I was running for re-election in a tough race, uh, well, I was for gay rights and I was for uh, against censorship on, on sex grounds and I was for legalizing marijuana and uh, abortion. There, there were suggestions that I was really not in tune with family values. And so the smart people running my campaign said, well, we got to show that, that you are. So we, we got this nice, handsome, older woman to sit in an easy chair and talk about how, how good I would be for all the people. And at the end, she says with a somewhat embarrassed smile, and if you want to know why I'm sure that Barney will be so good for uh, us older people, he's my son. It was my mother who at, at then launched a great wow. political career at the age of 70. She then went on for the next 15 years to be a major elderly political leader. So that was a further example of the collaboration. That's amazing. I want your family. <laughs> All right, Barney, would you like to take and ask me another challenge? Uh, I said I would. So then, yes. It's good enough for me. Barney Frank, everybody. <laughs> Congressman Frank, Barney, throughout your career, you've been known as one of the most articulate and wittiest people in Washington. We thought we'd take you down memory lane 
and review some of your notable quotes. <laughs> But to make it a game, we had to do a little something extra. So what we're going to do is read some quotes from two other newsmakers, Minnesota Representative Michelle Bachman <laughs> and rap legend Kanye West. So it's your job to tell us who said each quote. Is it you, Michelle Bachman, or Kanye West? And Jonathan Colton here will help me with this game. And if you get a, enough right, we have a listener by the name of Sabrina Mazur in Atlanta, Georgia, and she will win a Rubik's cube. Stakes are high. Are you ready? I'm ready. The problem with the war in Iraq is not so much the intelligence as the stupidity. That, that, that's I. That's you. That's right. <laughs> okay, this, uh, this is a quote from uh, Twitter. Somebody tweeted this. Was it you, Michelle Bachman, or Kanye West? <laughs> Fur pillows are actually hard to sleep on. Fur pillows? Kanye West. Kanye West is correct. What tipped you off on that one? Well, I don't tweet, so I got it down to two. Okay, that's good, that's good. Then I just went with my Instagram. <laughs> you went. In 2009, who greeted Republican National Committee Chairman Michael Steele by saying, Michael Steele, you be the man. You be the man. I guess Michelle. You guessed right. In 2009, who said, ma'am, trying to have a conversation with you would be like trying to argue with a dining room table? I have no interest in doing it. Uh, that, that would be I. Yes, that, that was you. Would you like to provide context for that uh, particular Yes, quote? she was a follower of Lyndon LaRouche, who was holding a poster of President Obama with a Hitler mustache and asked me why I was continuing to support the Hitler-like extermination policies of President Obama. I'm glad you asked me for the context because you differentiate yourself as a news medium from Fox News, which always, <laughs> always runs the answer without the question. Well, I think you were very kind with the dining room table reference. Well, but you would understand, if as, a, as a comic, first of all, there is the rule of three. Absolutely. And the three syllables is better than, you know, debating a chair. I mean, that was... Right. That's right. <laughs> Dining room table. Already a winner. Punchline. <laughs> On the other hand, uh, who would have thought that having said that, Clint Eastwood would have taken me seriously <laughs> three years later? To prove that I was right, I think the chair won. <laughs> the Bible had, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 characters in it. You don't think I would be one of the characters of today's modern Bible? <laughs> Kanye West? Yes. <laughs> that was one of his more modest days, by the way. He had a very condensed Bible, I gather. <laughs> Just about 50 characters. Yeah. 
Finally, who said this? I'm used to being in the minority. Hey, I'm a left-handed gay Jew. I've never felt automatically a member of any majority. Well, if we weren't on radio, I'd just raise my left hand to show them to, to be the one who, who did that. Clearly, these were too easy, and you won. And you got them all correct. That means you are the winner. Sabrina Mazur will get her Ask Me Another Rubik's Cube. Thank you so much. Another huge round of applause for our VIP, Barney Frank. Jonathan, what else do you have in store for us? I'm going to play a song for you. This is, uh, this is by the Pixies. Outside there's a box car waiting Outside the family stew Out by the fire breathing Outside we wait till face turns blue I know the nervous walking I know the dirty beard hangs Out by the box car waiting Take me away to nowhere plains There is a wait so long Never wait so long Here comes your man Here comes your man Here comes your man Jonathan Colton. Thank you. We've reached that point in the show where we're going to crown this week's grand champion. Let's bring back the winners from all the previous games from Hod Ka Pun Jack Martin, from Plus One Dan Katz, from Name Brand Names John Pettit, and from I Left My Heart in Boston Karen Travers. And I'm going to ask our puzzle guru, Art Chung, to take us out. Afira, this game is called Banned in Boston. From the late 1800s up until the 1950s, many novels and works of art were banned from the city for being immoral or indecent. But don't worry, that's not what this game is about. <laughs> this game is about words, proper names, and phrases that begin with the letters B-A-N. So, for example, if I said it's a triangular patterned cloth worn around your head, the answer would be Bandana. That's right. We're going to play this spelling bee style. So one wrong answer and you're out. You'll have only a few seconds to give me that answer. And the last person standing is our grand winner. Remember, all the answers begin with the letters B-A-N. Here we go. Jack, it's a bluegrass instrument played by comedian Steve Martin. Banjo. You got it. Dan, it's what you'd hold on to while walking down the staircase. A banister. That's right. John, it's the last name of the host of America's Next Top Model, Tyra. Banks. Banks, correct. Karen, the British call it fringe, but we call the hair in front of your forehead this. Bangs. You've got bangs, that's right. Jack, it's an HBO miniseries produced by Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks about World War II. Band of Brothers. Band of Brothers, that's right. Dan, Stephen King says that the fictional town of Derry is his portrayal of this city in Maine. Bangor? Bangor, Maine. You got it. John, 
He was the supervillain in the Batman film, The Dark Knight Rises. Three seconds. I'm sorry, John, we're out of time. Karen, do you know the answer? The supervillain in the Batman film, The Dark Knight Rises. I got nothing. You got nothing. I'm sorry. Let's go to Jack. Jack, do you know the answer to that question? Can I use banjo again? <laughs> you could try, but that's... Yeah, that's not going to get it done. Jack is closing his eyes in deep contemplation. Oh, let's throw Banksy a bone. No, I'm sorry. Dan, if you know the answer, you are a grand winner. I would say it in his voice, but you'd have no idea what I was saying. Uh, it's Bane. Bane is correct. It is no surprise the man wearing the superhero T-shirt got that question. Dan, you're our Ask Me Another big winner. Congratulations. Thank you very much. To celebrate our first show on the road, your prize is your very own Ask Me Another travel tote. We have filled a bag with everything a nerd needs. We've got a toothbrush, playing cards, a book of Mad Libs, an Ask Me Another cloth cleaner, sinus medication, a Jonathan Colton CD, and so much more. Congratulations, Dan. Thank you so much. So this is where we say goodbye or until next week, but you don't have to let the game stop here. Just take us with you everywhere by downloading our podcast, or you can always find us on Facebook or Twitter. Just look around for NPR Ask Me Another. Ask Me Another's puzzle guru is Art Chung. Hey, my name anagrams to Narc Thug. Our house musician is Jonathan Colton. Launch at Jot Noon. Additional puzzle writing by Greg Pliska, Dan Schofield, J. Keith Von Stratton, and Greg Volk. Ask Me Another is produced by Josh Rogeson, John Asante, and Eleanor Kagan, along with Jesse Baker, Portia Robertson-Migas, and Eric Newsom. We'd like to thank the Wilbur Theater, Healer with Butter, and the amazing radio station WBUR here in Boston, and our production partner, WNYC. I'm Harripe Begonias, Ophira Eisenberg, and this was Ask Me Another from NPR. <laughs> <laughs>